Welcome and thank you for taking the time to listen to the Word of God released through Randolph Barnwell. Randolph is the founder and senior elder of Gate Ministries Durban Central. Be encouraged to access free additional resources for your edification at randolphbonnell.com. Great grace, peace, and mercy from Christ be multiplied to you as you listen to this teaching. Amen. I'm going to continue from where we left off last week. Um, Last week we did part two of the word of the Lord in the house of the Lord, and it was a fairly lengthy study. I want to encourage you to rehearse that. Um, I'm not going to go over some of the essential points now for the sake of time. I want to get straight into tonight's focus. Amen. But how many of you are loving the word of the Lord? Amen. Are you applying yourself and your mind to it diligently as you study it? Amen. I trust that it's becoming the the centrality of your very life as a person. Amen. So I want to encourage you, make the word of the Lord primary. Make it pivotal. Make it the thing around which you order the rest of your life around. Make it so central that everything else is ordered around this priority. Everything else must become secondary to to this word. My eyes, David said, prevent the night watches that I might meditate in thy, in thy law. What he was saying is, I would even rob myself of sleep to put in extra time to look into your law. So let the desire and the um, the almost unquenchable thirst for God's word manifests itself in how you esteem it, in how you approach it, in how much time you accord to it, etc. Amen? Amen. So, on page one, the main business of the house of God is the word of God. We've been laboring this point. The main business of the house is the word. And we looked at Isaiah 2 and Micah 4, which says that the mountain of the Lord's house will be established as chief over all the mountains of the earth. And nations will stream up to it and say, teach us your ways. And the word of the Lord will go forth from Jerusalem. God's word, God's scepter, God's strength will be issued forth from his house. What makes his house strong is word. What makes the house the house is word. The house is not the house if it's not filled with the word, okay? And I want to encourage you, let these not just be cliches in this house. Let this now become living enactments, living embodiments. All of you by this stage, right? Some of you have been with me for a long time. By, by, surely by, by this stage, you should be so word-focused, so word-intense, so word-consumed uh, by the word of the Lord, studying daily, pouring your heart, um, trying to squeeze in time here or there to give more penetrative study into the, into the word of the Lord. Amen? Now, I've entitled this First Love. Everyone say First Love. Not Second Love, First Love. Okay? And we will demonstrate this in next week's session. But First Love, biblically, is a love for God's word. First Love is not to be understood as an emotional feeling of well-being or endearment toward God, right? First love biblically is when you love his word, 
Nothing more, nothing less. Okay? And we will look at the church at Ephesus that went away from their first love. And we will explore that in our next session. But for today, we're simply going to look at one's gentle devotion of love and of priority that you should have toward the word of the Lord. So it will be very gentle sort of encouragement. Um, Tonight's session will not so much be didactic as much as it will be exhortational, inspirational. Amen? Just felt we needed to just change gear a bit and uh, it will be more encouraging. Okay? Than educational, although you will learn much. Amen. So, it's the word of the Lord. Amen. I love what William Hinn said once um, in his series on kingdom economics that I listened to some time ago. He said, um, People give such fleeting and casual attention to the word of the Lord. And in his saying that, he got almost angry and agitated to his people and he cajoled them. Um, to spend more time in the word. And he said, for crying out loud, it's God's word after all. How can you disesteem something so eternal? Rather give your magazine that, that scant attention. But when it comes to this, this is eternal things. This is life. Amen? Now, what's the greatest commandment in the, in the word of the Lord? Matthew 22, verse 37. It's to love God and to love each other. Not so? He said to them, verse 38, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like unto it, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The greatest command is to love God. There's no other greater command than to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like unto it, love your neighbor as as yourself. John intensifies this command when he says in 13.34, John 13.34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, how? As I have loved you. So from Matthew 22.39, which says, love your neighbor as yourself, John intensifies, so there's a progression in the requirement of this command. So I don't love my neighbor as I love myself. I love my neighbor how? As he has loved me. Right? So there's the progression in this, in this commandment. Right? Now, your love for God, if your love for God, listen carefully, is the greatest commandment. And the second is like unto it. Love your neighbor, not as you love yourself, Love your neighbor as he has loved you. We need to to ask ourselves, what then provides proof of my love for God and my love for my neighbor? The theme of love we'll probably explore more intensely later. But for example, the scriptures say that you cannot claim to love God whom you have not seen, and you hate your brother whom you seen. So the two things are mutually Interactive, love for God and love for, the, for one another or for the brothers. I can demonstrate my love for God by how I love my brother. And the degree of my love for my brother, it must be measured by this yardstick. I must love him as he loves me. So the commandment has, has elevated from, don't love your neighbor as you love yourself, 
Love your neighbor as God loves. Right? So what is these two things, loving God and loving each other, what has these two things got to do with the primacy of the word of the Lord in our lives? Now, firstly, your love for God is evidenced by your attitude towards his word. Specifically, your level of obedience to his word. Right? Jesus said this in John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my, keep my commandments. A very important scripture. It's so basic, eh? If you love me, demonstrate this by your obedience. The degree to which you obey God indicates your love for him. Right? Your love for God is measured by the extent of your actual obedience to his word. We are connecting our love for God and love for the brothers by our attitude to word. And I'll show you other scriptures shortly. The way you demonstrate love for God is by obeying what he tells you. Right? Um, you can sing and raise your hands, Lord, I love you in your worship, wonderful love songs to the Lord. That has a place. The emotional side of love, which involves feeling and how, how one postures yourself in reference to God, the expression of terms of endearment, all of that is part of love, but all of that does not define love. Right? Love is demonstrated in action. And Jesus said, okay, you love me, demonstrated by your attitude to my word. Nothing more, nothing less. So it's, if you disobey, you've just demonstrated your lack of love for God. Another way of phrasing this is, the only way I demonstrate my love for God is by obeying His Word. Love for God is demonstrated by an act of obedience, nothing more, nothing less. Right? Now 1 John chapter 2, verse 4 and 5 says the following, The one who says, I have come to know Him, and does not keep His commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. You claim you've come to know him, but you don't keep his commandments. Now, a liar parades a reality that is not present. Lies is the absence of truth. Truth is reality. Right? So the Bible says you claim to know him, but you, you do not keep his commandments. You claim to have truth, but really, truth is not in you, and you are a liar. And the person is actually living in self-deception. Because you think you are fine, but your lack of obedience demonstrates the fact that you don't love God at all. Or you don't love Him enough to do what He says do. Right? So love for God is demonstrated by actual obedience. Verse 5 says... Whoever keeps his word, I like this, in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. You see that? Whoever keeps his word, in that person, the love of God has truly been perfected. And by this we know that we are in him, when we keep his word. Amen? Now turn over, in John 14, Jesus says the following, to his disciples in verse 19. After a little while, the world will, not lo will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. Now just stop right there. An amazing verse, eh? He's saying, after a little while, 
The world is not going to see me, but you will see me. So here's the issue of sight, prophetic awareness, vision, engagement with God. And this capacity is going to separate the disciples from the world. And he's saying, in a little while, I'm going to go away. The world won't see me, but you will still be able to see me, even though I'm not physically present with you. How will these things happen? He says to them, in that day you will know that I am in my Father. You are in me and I am in you. He who has my commandments and does what? And keeps them. He is the one who loves me. Can you see how love for God is demonstrated by two things, having and keeping. Everyone say have and keep. So have. Now you can't keep commandments you don't have. Hence the importance of exposing your spiritual ear to the sound of word. Word. People must, must understand my heart when I want people at meetings. It's not I want the meeting full. My concern is that there are some people that can go for weeks on end without being under the sound of word. And when you're in that environment, you're prone to temptation, prone to error, and faith is not generated in your life. Because faith comes how? By hearing the word that the preacher releases. Romans chapter 10. Contextually, faith is generated by hearing what the karuks or the preacher releases to you. That's how biblical faith comes. Right? So not being in that environment means you are wordless. You have just discounted the means by which he appears to you. Because he says, I'm going away. The world doesn't see me, but you would be able to see me. How? Have my words. Keep them. And this demonstrates your love. And listen carefully. And he who loves me, how do you love God? By having and keeping his word. And Jesus said, he who loves me will be loved of my father. And I will love him and I will disclose myself to him. I will make myself seen to him. And not to the world. So what is the line of separation? Between those to whom he is hidden. And those to whom he is disclosed. It's to those who have and keep. That demonstrate his love. Jesus said to that group. Or to that caliber of son. I come and I make myself. I make myself known to that one. Verse 22. Judas not Iscariot said to him. Lord what then. Has happened. That you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him and we will come to him and we will make our abode with him. Now, you know, this will put serious question marks on who is saved. Because who has the abode of God? In whom does God reside? If you fail to understand this and you say, I, I, I love him and I don't do what he says. First John says, I'm a liar. Self-deception. It's only the one who has the word, is exposed to the sound of the voice of God and does it, demonstrates his love for God to that person he comes to disclose himself to. Not just him, but the father. And the Bible says, we, both of us, we come, everyone say abode. 
We make our monet, our mansion. You become the mansion, you become the dwelling place of God. The presence of God in your life is maintained, is guaranteed, is validated by your perpetual, consistent obedience to the voice of God. Can you see how now that disobedience is not so much an innocent little thing we can dismiss now? This is the test by which we know we are in Him, as John says. By this we know we are in Him. Who wants His abode to be you? Remember we we read uh, a few, uh, two sessions ago, the verse in Zechariah, where, where he says, now the throne of God will be you, will be in your midst. Heaven is his throne, the place from which he expedites his will. Earth is his footstool, yes. But the throne moves to the sun, when the sun becomes a visible representation of the word, incarnate, obedient to every word that you have heard. You become the venue, the place of location from which God rules. You become the throne of God. You become the Ark of the Covenant in your world, the presence of God. Amen? Now, failure to obey. We're in the middle of page two. Failure to love, sorry. God, by not loving and obeying His Word, has deep implications on your attitude towards your brothers and sisters. Look at the serious verse. 1 John 5, 2 verse and, and 3. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and do what? And observe His commandments. And this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. Many people say that's hard to obey. That doctrine is hard to obey. That requirement is hard. Tell your neighbor the commandments are not hard. They're not burdensome. Now remember we started the study by saying, what is the greatest commandment? Love God and love your, your neighbor or your brother, your sister. How much how must we love each other? As he loves us. Right? So we've just read that our love for God is demonstrated by obedience to his word. This verse is telling us something different. It's telling us that I love Sean when I obey God's word. This verse is not just telling me when I obey God's word, I love God. Read it carefully. Verse 2 says, by this we know when we love who? Not God, the children of God. We know we love the children of God when we do what? When we love God and obey. Observe His commandments. That is why in this, in this season, right now, your obedience is not a personal, private matter anymore. Your disobedience has huge impact upon the welfare of the community. Now. Because when I disobey privately, think about it like this. When I disobey privately, in my private space, when nobody sees, late at night, I'm telling Quentin, I don't love you. Brother, I don't love you. But I'm doing something divorced from him. It's my own indaba. Right? It's my own failing yapping in the corner. But this verse says, when, by this I know I love Quentin, 
when I love God and do what he says. My failure to obey God and so declare my lack of love for him, when I disobey him, I'm demonstrating I don't love him, also demonstrates the fact that I'm not concerned for the welfare of the house. Right? So that is why it's so important in this season to understand how the, the emphases of God now shift. Can you see like things are getting... Uh, an action is not so innocent now. It's the weightedness attendant with the repercussions are now far, far reaching. Hmm? So Achan's sin, he sins privately, he hides in the tent. But what does it do to Israel's corporate success in warfare? Private sin inhibits corporate movement. Right? So it's, it's, it's critical that we understand. This series is entitled, Our Priority or the Primacy of the Word of the Lord. Our devotion to God and His Word is now demonstrating our commitment to community. Our commitment to unity. Our commitment to oneness. Our commitment to the fact that we love the house so much. That next time I'm tempted privately to disobey God when nobody else sees. More than, yes, my love for God, my desire to please Him. I'm now part of a body to which I'm accountable. Even when I'm out of the view of that body, I act responsibly, privately, because I'm part of a family. Hmm? And, and that is, that this, this thought is demonstration of time to demonstrate it throughout the scriptures, but this thought is a predominant thought throughout the scriptures. So I want to encourage you. Next time you're tempted, Vic, to disobey God, think about me. So I can't, I can't fail God because I have not just God. I want to please Him as my God. I have a brother. I have sisters. I have a family to which I'm accountable. Hmm? So it becomes, the, the, the emphasis shifts. Amen? So may the faces of the house appear to your face in the, in the heat of, of your hour of temptation. Right? Like Achan, you, the, the wedge of gold. What did it take? A wedge of gold, a Babylonian garment, and some silver. The items are luring, but you think, if I do this, I'm going to erode the house, the corporate power of the entire group. I can cause the house defeat in the next battle we face corporately because of my private disobedience. By the obedience of one man, we know this Romans, by the obedience of one, many were made righteous. By the disobedience of one, many were made unrighteous. Right? The disobedience of Adam. That is why if, if it is true that my disobedience privately negatively affects the house corporately, the opposite is true. That my obedience privately strengthens the corporate power of the house. Imagine, I just can't, I'll, I pray for the day. Let's say we are about, we're about 90 people in this house, 80 to 90 people. What if 90 people pitch up at a gathering? And remember I said to you last week, God wants to speak because of a gathering. Right now, we haven't, get, we haven't got to that level yet. Our, our attendance corporately is far too erratic. There's not one time when everybody is here. Not one. And I'm saying, what if there's a corporate attendance, and we are, I shared a verse with you last week where... God will speak by virtue of the gathering, not by virtue of my private preparation. 
Certain things will be released based on the constitution of the company. And what if all of those people came in all 100% obedient? There will be such corporate momentum and power released here. But uh, many times in local houses, um, full potential is eroded by private disobedience. The, 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 the full potential of the corporate momentum is always impeded, prohibited, not facilitated by the, the non-engagement of people in their hearts privately. Right at the bottom of page 2, 2 John 1, 6. This is love. Tell you later, this is it. This is, I like the way John talks. This is it, guys. This is love. You want to know what love is? This is it. This is love. That we walk according to his commandments. Right? Next time we, we sing, I love you, I love you, I love you. Right? I obey you, I obey you, obey you. <laughs> Think about, challenge yourself, what is the extent? Because that song means nothing if it's not matched by a life of active private obedience. This is what John says. We walk according to his commandments. And this is the commandment that you've heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. Amen. Page 3. I'm going to go a bit faster because I told you God hijacked the study today. I wasn't supposed to be sharing all of this. I worked feverishly from early this morning to get this all typed out, all in my head. But it, it, it came to the fore. I was going to share with you from, as I've said to you, to read uh, Acts 19.20, Revelation 1.2, but we'll do that at the next session. Right? This, is, this was supposed to be a one-page introduction to that, but in, the introduction became its own study. <laughs> okay. But I realized in doing it how blessed I was personally and how the house needed this now. Now, I want to speak about passionate delight. Everyone say passionate. It's not just ordinary delight. Deep, passionate, fervent Delight in and for the word of God. The Hebrew word for delight, for delight is chepetz. 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 It means delight, desire, pleasure. I like this. To be inclined toward a thing. I love that meaning. To be inclined towards. Or it also means longing. Deep-seated longing. Right? Now, you can't obey a word that you don't delight in. The first thing about, for us to get to the place where our obedience reflects our love for God and for each other and for the house. Every person in the house has got to come to the place where this book called the Bible or the concept of the voice that issues forth from the voice of our spiritual father that must be highly prioritized and you must Delight in it. It must not be a drudgery and a job. You must not um, bear listening to your father. Um, It must not be intolerable for you. It must be joyous. It must be something you look forward to, to hearing the sound. I hope no one's here by coercion. You're all happy to be here. Nobody want to leave quickly and go home. Right? This is important for you. That's why you came, not so. So you esteem the word, you delight in it. When I talk about this issue of delight, I refer to, yes, the listening 
under the sound of the voice of the one whom God has positioned over you. But also, I'm alluding to your private personal times of, uh, of engagement in the world. It must become important to you. Ask your neighbor. Everyone do this or someone sitting next to you. How much time do you spend in the word per week? Don't answer them. I'm just asking. Right. Now, listen carefully. Um, if you don't esteem something, if you don't prioritize something, you're less prone to obeying it. So, to get to the place of obedience, you've got to see the value, see the importance of the word of the Lord firstly. And I think, for me personally, my estimation is this. For most of the church, this is where the problem lies. We fail to see the value of what we have. Hence, obedience is not such an important issue because the thing to which we are called to obey is not valued. It's not prioritized. It's not esteemed to the degree um, that, we, that we should. Right? Let's look at some of the blessings of delighting in and loving God's word. Firstly, delight facilitates obedience. Psalm 119 verse 35 says, Make me to walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. I mean, that verse is so clear. I will walk in the path of your commandments. Why? I delight. My, that's where my love is. That's where I want to please God. I want to express my love for the brothers. So to obey is easy, because that is my delight. Job said this in, Chapter 23, verse 12. I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more necessary than my daily food or my necessary food. Um, the necessary food um, in the NASB marginal rendering, for those of you who have that Bible, you'll see a little one, go to the margin. It's rendered like this, my prescribed portion. I've esteemed the words of his mouth more necessary than my prescribed portions. Right? Now, why doesn't Job depart from the commandment of the Lord? Why doesn't he not disobey? Why does he always obey? He says, I always obey because of, of what I treasure. I've treasured your words, the words of your mouth, more necessary than my daily food. I was so challenged by the folk in Kenya in my last trip. They come... We had, for the whole week, we had lunch hour meetings. And literally, the church comes in the lunch hour. The venue, we, uh, the, uh, Dr. Chicana chose a venue in town. And between one and two places, people from work come in and they go. We, we plan the meeting where it's 55 minutes and they go back to their workplaces. Next meeting's at 5 o'clock. They knock off at 5 and they come straight to the house of the Lord. And we went the whole week like that. We taught from five to seven. Then they go home to their families. I'm saying this will never work in South Africa. <laughs> never days. Right? Um, it, it was a, an esteem and a priority and a value for God's word that I've never seen in many, many places. And people come from a full day's work and they'll sit and taking notes feverishly. You, because you've treasured something, you will continually walk in the path of it. Amen? God's commandments are not burdensome. I like this. 
to the one who loves him and his word. Remember we read this verse, 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Now look at Deuteronomy 30, verse 8 to 20. Let's read this in the spirit of the scriptures. Now God is saying to Israel, listen carefully. Obey the Lord and observe all his commandments, which I command you today. Then the Lord your God, now look at verse 8, obey the Lord and observe his commandments, verse 9. Then the Lord your God will prosper you abundantly in all the work of your hands, in the offspring of your body, in the offspring of your cattle, your produce of your ground. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good, just as he rejoiced over your fathers. So there's a blessing attendant with the act of obedience. It says God will prosper you and God will abundantly bless all the work of your, of your hands. Verse 10. If you obey the Lord to keep his commandments and his statutes which are written in this book of the law, if you turn to the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul, for this commandment which I command you today is not too difficult for you. It's not out of reach. Verse 10. If you obey the Lord your God and keep his commandments, his statutes which are written in this book of the law, if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. For this commandment which I command you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. Now, I really want to stress this. Never ever approach the command of God saying, this is a hard thing. This is hard or difficult to obey. The moment you approach the command of the Lord, that you're really starting on the wrong foot, on the back foot. And you, you're less prone to obey that which you think is difficult to obey. Right? It is not in heaven that you should say, we will go up to heaven for us and get it for us and make, it, and make us hear it that we might observe it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, we will cross the sea for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we might observe it. I like this, verse 14. But the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you might observe it. Word is... Now, near you, in your heart and in your mouth, means it's, you've assimilated it into the entirety of your life. It's part and par... Uh, uh, it is an essential part of who you are. It's near you. So the idea of the esteem and the treasuring of the word of the Lord is contained herein. Hence, the command will not be difficult for you. Verse 15, See, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. You can choose. In that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to walk in His ways and keep His commandments and His statutes and His judgments. I like this. That you might live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. Let me just stop here. While preparing this, the Lord literally said to me, you're now entering a phase of blessing because of obedience. And tell your people, to those who have been faithful and have obeyed principles, there's a blessing that's going to come upon you and overtake you by virtue of your steadfast obedience, especially in times of adversity. Right? The, the blessing of the Lord will come upon you and, 
and overtake you. God says, I set before you life and prosperity in the one hand and a death and adversity on the other. We must choose, verse 16, in that I command you today to do what? To love the Lord your God, comma, how do you do that? How do you love the Lord your God? Walk in His ways and keep His commandments and His statutes and His and His judgment that you might live and multiply, etc. Verse 17, but if your heart turns away and you will not obey, but are drawn away and you worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you will surely perish. So just as these blessings attendant with obedience, these curses attendant with disobedience. You will not prolong your days in the land where you are crossing the Jordan to enter it and possess it. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. I've set before you life and death, blessing and, a, and the curse. So choose life in order that you might live and your descendants. Tell your neighbor, choose life. By loving the Lord your God and by obeying His voice. I like this. Loving the Lord and obeying His voice. Loving the Lord and obeying His voice. And by holding fast to Him. For this is your life. What is your life? Loving the Lord, obeying His voice, holding fast to Him. Repeat after me. Loving the Lord, obeying His voice, holding fast to Him. Semicolon. This is your life. What is your life? Loving the Lord, obeying His voice, holding on to Him. That is living. That is life. That is living. That is life. Loving God, obeying His voice, holding fast to Him. Nothing more in life is more important than this. This is your life. Tell your neighbor, this is our life. Tell someone we know no other life. Right? Loving God, obeying His voice, holding fast to Him. The length of your days, you would live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to, to give them. Amen? What encourage you? No matter what your level of obedience has been thus far in this house, I hear the Lord saying, I'm ready to bless your community in ways that will blow your mind. Never mind the past of your disobedience. But position yourself for a life of blessing that's going to come to you simply by your acts of perpetual steadfast obedience. I want to leave that as a prophetic witness in your spirit. Position yourself for this. It's going to come to you. The next dot. <clears throat> Delight in God's word empowers one to endure affliction. Now, this is where I want to encourage the house. Because many of us have been through affliction upon affliction, adversity upon adversity, difficulty upon difficulty. Some of your middle names are suffering. <laughs> oh, right. We've been through, we've been tried and tested. But now listen carefully, whenever you suffer, ask yourself one of three questions. Number one, is this trial a consequence of my personal disobedience? If so, Repent and then position yourself to obey. Some of us suffer because of our own wrongdoing, our own carnality. Right? And if you've convinced and you are repentful of that, change your heart and mind and position yourself on a path of 
obedience. And let me just say this. Don't let your past disobedience haunt you. Don't let the guilt of the past perpetually gnaw at you. What God forgives, he forgets. He buries it in the sea of forgetfulness and he does not call it to remembrance anymore. Do you know that if you remind God of your past failings, he wouldn't know what you're talking about. He cannot recollect it even though he's God. Because of his own will, he said, I will take it, bear it in the sea of forgetfulness, and I will remember it no more, says the Lord. As God as he is God, as powerful as he is, he's bound to what he said. In his power, his powerful power has erased the memory of your past failing. So don't live in the guilt of what you, where you failed God before. If, if you've messed up there and you realized you were wrong, you repent. And the Bible says, when we, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with the other. And the blood of his son cleanses us from all sin. Beloved, when you sin, John says, uh, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. Right? And so he's able to, in his advocacy on our behalf, forgive us. And cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But let me just say this. Don't now go back and, and, and willingly disobey and start a whole new cycle of reaping that you're going to need grace to endure. Right? What did Jesus say to the woman caught in the act of adultery? Get up. Go but sin no more. Let this be your last act of adultery, woman. Go and don't do it again. Right? God will paint, uh, start your life on a new cycle, as it were. Amen? Now, listen carefully. At times, I wrote in your notes, the very consequence of our disobedience can be used by God to get us to a place of more determined and, and resolute obedience to His Word. Hmm? Some of us, um, we, when we bear the consequences of our failing, the very consequence that are repercussions for our failing in itself is a spur, a motivation for us not to fail in that same area again. Not so? Now David said this, or whoever wrote Psalm 119 said this in verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. <laughs> it's like before I was afflicted, I was doing my own thing. But now that I was afflicted, now I keep your word. <laughs> That's why I always say, listen under the voice of instruction. Right? Rather than by the repercussions of your foolishness. Listen to instruction. Rather than by the voice of your own, or the repercussions of your own foolishness. So ask yourself three questions. Is this trial a consequence of my personal disobedience? If so, quickly adjust and start to live right. Secondly, is this trial a global initiative of God in His bid to accomplish strategic aspects of His will for the nation or for a specific community of people? Right? Now, for example, if you were Elijah and you declared that three-year famine in Israel at that time, you were in the crisis yourself. You were part of the famine that you declared with your mouth. Not so. You had to live in a 
famine environment for three years. But God did, took care of Elijah in that, in that famine phase. Remember the woman, the widow of Zarephath? The raven that fed him at the brook Cherith, right? You must always analyze your trial. Is what am I experiencing bigger than my, my personal state? It's nothing because of what I have done. It's not, in fact, this is nothing to do with me in terms of God wanting to teach me something personally. God is dealing with the nation that I am part of. There's something bigger than me that's going on here. I am feeling the repercussions of it. To me, it can impact me as a difficulty or a trial. You must always, and I mean, it's pointless if there was a church down the road from Elijah's house and they call a prayer meeting on the Friday to pray for the famine to stop. Guess what? They would be praying illegally. When God started something and he was ended at a definite period of time, they would simply would have to understand the seasons and the times and correctly position themselves in the trial and walk through it gracefully. Right? So it's important to understand where, why are you experiencing what you are experiencing and make sense of it. But thirdly, is where I want to go. Is this personal trial because of a divine permittance by God to accomplish certain things within my life? Right? God may be wanting to perfect your obedience through your trial. Although Jesus was the Son of God, remember, he learned obedience by the things he, he suffered. He learned obedience by the things he suffered. Now, let me just say this. One way or another, even if you are the most righteous man on the earth, the most holy, above reproach, no one can point a finger at you, you're without blame, without reproach, uh, as white as a, as a, as snow, unblemishable, you will still suffer. Why? Because of the word. The word you hear will always come to test you. Remember we did this in session three. The word you hear, let me just say it like this. You will always suffer simply because you're exposed to word. <laughs> One way or another. And not suffer as in God's trying to discipline me. God is purely providing opportunity in the thing that he permits to test your metal and to, I just think, afford you the privilege and opportunity to obey him and so come to the next rung of assimilating his nature and character into your life. Like Abram, the slaughter of Isaac. Right? He says, the Lord tested Abraham. Right? The Lord tested him. Put him to a difficult command that was not burdensome or difficult to obey. Right? Because he loved God and he demonstrated that by willingness to go through a very difficult command by offering his only, his only, his only son. Psalm 119 verse 71 says, It was good for me that I was afflicted. Tell you about good for you. <laughs> it was good for me that I was afflicted. That I might learn your statutes. Let me just say this. There are certain things you learn in a Bible study. And there are certain things only affliction can teach you. Hmm? <laughs> One way or another, you're going to learn. Huh? In these times of suffering and affliction, 
this is where I want to encourage you because I sense not only in this house, but generally in churches all over the world, it's in the seasons of God's divine permittance of a particular thing that he allows to bring your way that your faith in him begins to wane. That you lose confidence and hope of your destiny. You say, God, but I obeyed the principle. Where's the blessing? now? I've been faithful to that. Where's the commensurate thing that's supposed to be happening in my life? Right? We all ask that question, haven't we not? Right? Now, here's the answer. Or the encouragement. In these times of difficult suffering and affliction, one must not doubt God's promises attendant with obedience and hence lose one's determination and will to continue to obey. That's the last time I'm giving first fruits. Last time I gave first fruits, all hell broke loose. I mean, you, you reason like this. Where's this blessing that they promised? Where's the blessing that the word of the Lord speaks about? Hmm? And sometimes your, your resolve to continue to obey is impacted by a consequence or a, a, a trial that God has permitted to come your way. And in the process of that, you lose resolve to obey or to continue to obey. Now Job says this. I, like, I love this verse. I just discovered this verse this morning. The New American Standard. This is my consolation. But it is still my consolation. I rejoice in unsparing pain that I have not denied the words of the Holy One. The contemporary English version frames it like this. Then I would be comforted knowing that in all of my pain, I never disobeyed God. The English Revised Version. Then I would be comforted by this one thing. Even through all this pain, I never refused to obey the commands of the Holy One. The New International Revised Version. Then I'd still have one thing to comfort me. It would be that I haven't said no to the Holy One's commands. That would give me joy in spite of the pain that never ends. Hmm? So some of you are in unsparing pain. It's perpetual. But I want to encourage you tonight. Never let your love for God wane. And how you demonstrate your love for God by perpetual oh obedience do we all feel like throwing in the towel now and then don't we but i want to encourage you endure hardness like a good soldier and tell um before you go to bed tonight take this verse and look in the mirror daral and say let me choose one erv then i will be comforted by this one daral comfort yourself you're talking to yourself in the mirror daral comfort yourself my sister by this one thing even through all of this pain, I refused to. I never refused to obey the commands of the Lord. My obedience did not wane with the intensity of my trial. You know why you are more prone to, to disobey in the heat of a trial? You think, what the heck? Right? And you feel yourself slipping. Not so? But this house must intensify your resolve to obey particularly in growing difficulty. It's the way out. Why? I mean, think about it. If you are going to know the blessing of God, it's only going to become because of obedience. So why not continue to obey? Demonstrate to God, I'll walk to this fire, I'll walk to this water, 
But I will walk through obeying you. Amen? I will walk through obeying you. Here's the point. If whatever reason you suffer, any of the three above that we, we spoke about, whatever reason you are suffering, in trials and diverse difficulties, never lose your delight for God's word. Never lose. Do you know that when you are at the height of your severest suffering, you're prone to study less, to read your Bible? Hey? You, you let up on, th- on, on, on a church attendance, for example, on being under the sound of the voice of your spiritual father. You start to wane on a number of issues. But I'm saying, as the fire of the trial intensifies, never let that impact your love for God, which is demonstrated by your attitude towards his word. In fact, the opposite is true. As the fire intensifies, you should be spending more time in the word. I often say to people, um, I said to someone recently, about two weeks ago, I haven't seen you for so long. Where have you been? And they said, this trial, that trial. I said, but all the more reason for you to be here. You're staying away is going to deepen the, the pit. You need grace. You need word. All the more reason for you to come. Amen? Now, where are we? Page five. Never lose your delight for God's word. Psalm 119 verse 92 says, If your law had not been my delight, then I would have perished in my affliction. How many of you can testify to this? If it wasn't for the fact that God, I was hearing God's word, it kept me sane, it kept me focused. If your word was not the center of my life, I would have given up so easily. Verse 45, 49 and 50 says, Remember the word to your servant, in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in in my affliction. Your word has revived me. Hmm? Your word has revived me. Right? I just put a little reminder there about in session three where we discuss every word that you hear will be t- will come to to test you. And I just put a reminder about Joseph. Remember, he had wonderful prophetic promises, dreams of rulership, etc. But his whole life was one long test, literally, test after test, trial after trial. But listen, each one was preparation for him to bring him to his ultimate end of rulership. Not so? I thank God that you suffered. Praise God. Hallelujah. Like Paul, I would say, I rejoice in sufferings. (laughs) Amen? Thank God for your trial. Tell your neighbor, bless you for your suffering. Bless you. You know why? You know why? You know why? You are more prepared now and you're more closer to your destiny now than you were before your, your suffering. I'm glad I went through some of the stuff I went through in the Lord. I am more, right now, not arrogant, but more confident to engage certain forums, to engage certain things. If, and there was a time, Renee knows, I laid on my carpet there in front of my lounge, a little, little carpet those, those early years, where we presently live, and I bawled my eyes out because of a particular thing I was experiencing. I wasn't afraid to cry loud to. And I thought my life was coming to shreds, literal end. Right? When I review the process, I'm now the most stronger for it. Going through it, I couldn't make sense of it. But with hindsight, I look back and I say, 
And in that, those periods, I call unto God. I kept reading the word. If your word hadn't been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Amen. Tell you never thank God for his word. Just one or two scriptures, we'll have a quick break. Psalm 105 verse 19 says, Until the time that his word came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. Please just prophesy to someone next to you. Tell him, you are now more closer to your ultimate destiny than you've ever been before. You're more closer than you've ever been. I want to encourage the house. We are are more closer to the dominion mandate than we've ever been and we've ever been before. Revelation 1 verse 9, John says this, I, John, your brother, and the fellow partaker in tribulation. I like this. In fact, I'm going to use this when I talk to some of you on emails. I'll say, how's it, how's it, Leo? How are you? Your fellow partaker in tribulation. It's like your brew in the, in the suffering. We're like we're in the same boat together. Hmm? I like the way he phrased You know, I saw this once. I saw this once in one of Kelly Varner's books. You know, when they were at the forward, and, and he, was, he was thanking somebody for the contribution this person had in his life. And he, and he quoted this verse. says, this brother has been my fellow partaker in all of my tribulations. He's been there. Let me just say this. When you suffer, it's good to support each other. How many of you are glad you had some fellows <laughs> in the tribulations? It's, it's almost like the fellows were not part of anything, but they suffered with you. They're fellow partakers. Amen. You know what Paul said of Timothy? He says, Timothy, do not be ashamed of my chains, but become a partaker in my sufferings. Right? It's amazing how when one person suffers, those who are not committed to the relationship bolt. Right? Everything's hunky-dory. They come like, like, like insects to a light. They are attracted. But the moment there's potential for your reputation to be then everyone, Paul said to Timothy, do not be afraid of, or ashamed of my chains, my son. Right? People have left me. He said, all they in Asia have deserted me. Demas has gone. He's left me, forsaken me, having loved this present world. Right? Only Luke, the physician, is with me. When you come, do your best to come to me before the winter. Right? He was appealing to his son, stand with me in my imprisonment. So I just love this verse. I, John, your brother, your fellow partaker in tribulation, and the kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos because of? I was there because of the word. I was in tribulation because of the word. Every word will be sent to try you. Paul's thorn in the flesh as we close. You know this. Whatever the thorn in the flesh was, we don't know what it was. Thomas convinced it was partial blindness because of what he said in Galatians. When I came to you, you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ himself. And he said, if it were possible, you would have plucked out one of your eyes and given it to, to me. So it could be ever, uh, uh, the, the, the light that shone on the Damascus road that blinded him at his conversion could have impacted him negatively. This is 30 years down the line, he's writing. Now, he says this, this thorn in the flesh, 2 Corinthians 12. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, 
to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. So who wants more revelation? <laughs> it's a trick question. Paul says, why was, what was the reason for God's permittance of this messenger of Satan? Because a thorn in the flesh that riled me every day. I woke up after contend with this thing. For most of my ministry life, this is a perpetual thorn in my side. He says, one reason only. Not because I disobeyed or sinned. It was simply because of the level of revelation I was exposed to. God allowed this to keep me humble. Because knowledge puffs up, as you know. Right? So to keep, I mean, if Paul, as a great as a man as he was, was prone to pride, who are, who are we? Right? So if we're going to be the house of the Lord, in the mountain of the Lord, pregnant with the word and revelation, guess what? Guess what? We will suffer the most. Welcome to Eternal Sound Ministries. You will suffer. But you're suffering. John says, I was in tribulation. Why? Because of that word that was revealed. You know what Paul's first prophecy was? Ananias prophesies. God said to him, go to him and show him how many things he must suffer. Who would like that as your first prophecy you get in salvation? Paul, the first words Paul is hearing, you're going to suffer, bro. Thus saith the Lord, you'll suffer for my name's sake. That's why when Agabus tied his hand and said, such will the Jews do to this man who owns this girdle at Jerusalem. And they dissuaded him not to go. They begged him, don't go there. He says, now I'm more resolute to go. For the Lord has witnessed to me that bonds and chains await me wherever I go. Paul embraced suffering, suffering sorry, as, a, as a, a perpetual characteristic feature of his life. Simply because of the level of word he carried. So you still want to be a member of this house? Amen. <laughs> Hallelujah. Look, I like what, you know why we have to embrace this? Because more grace is given to those who suffer. He said it. Concerning this, I implored. The word implored means to beg deeply. I beg God, take this thorn away from me. Three times. He said to me, what? My, my grace. Suffering is a way of accessing more grace. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. When is power perfected? Only when you're weak. You are not your strongest when you are strong. You're your strongest when you are weak. Most gladly, I like this, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well contented with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Amen. Let's have a quick break. Amen. Let's continue. At the bottom of page 5, I shared some of these thoughts on Sunday and also in the previous session, but I want to re-emphasize them because of tonight's topic. Delight in the Word, and by its light, you can walk through times of darkness. Psalm 18, verse 28. You light my lamp. The Lord illumines my darkness. I check these verses out as a bunch or group of verses. 
Psalm 18, 28 saying, You light my lamp, you illumine my darkness. Proverbs 20, 27, The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord, searching out the innermost parts of his being. And then Psalm 119, verse 105 tells us, Your words are lamp to my feet, and they light and a light to my pathway. So two things, you must just, before we go on, be aware of in these verses. I'm just going to write this on the board here. It says, the spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord. What do lamps do? Lamps illumine. Lamps, lamps give light. Light is understanding. Right? My spirit, it says, the spirit is the lamp of the Lord. And it, but it also says, thy word is a lamp to my feet. Right? The word is the methodology by which light, which is God, God is light. God, the Bible says, wraps himself in light. He makes light on day one. Right? So the light, essentially who God is, all that it represents, comes to us through his word. Now because we are spirit, soul, and, and body, Jesus said, the words I speak, they are what? They are spirit and they are life. The spirit of man is the touchstone, is the interface, if you would, between anything divine and anything human. That which is eternal in the heavenly realms, if that wants to come into the earth realm, it comes in and interfaces to the spirit of man. Right? So the words which are spirit must be received with your, with your spirit. That word is a lamp to your feet, Right? And the Bible says, the spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord. And this lamp in your spirit gives light. It's able to, I'll just do it like this, search out all things and expose, shed light on all things. Particularly the domains of your soul and your, and your body. Now just hold that thought. Everyone say, lamp to my feet. Right? And it's also a light to your path. And remember I drew this on Sunday. If we draw a stick man here again. Walking. I think my drawings have improved. <laughs> your words are lamp to my feet and a light to my pathway. This lamp. The effect of the word illuminating my spirit by which I can search out all the details of my life. This word is also, draw a lamp like that. Let me say with the candle lit. It's a lamp to my, as I walk my path, it gives me short-term direction. It one foot ahead of the next. As I walk and traverse this life, I walk definitively. I walk in light. I walk with understanding because the word of God gives me clarity. But the word that is a lamp, lighting up, illumining my spirit, listen carefully, before I go there, your spirit has a mind. Your soul has a mind. Your soul has a mind, will, and emotions. Your spirit has a mind, will, and emotions. 
The mind of the spirit must always predominate over the mind of the soul. Or, the mind of the spirit must inform the mind of the soul. The mind of the soul must take its cue from the mind of the spirit. Said another way, the mind of the soul must be brought in sync or alignment with the mind of the spirit that has been renewed. The worst thing is to have a renewed spirit with an unrenewed mind. Right? That is what the scripture means. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Right? You know what the... That's why when, when you hear the word that emits from the light of God, you work, walk in the light of that word you received, and you don't rationalize the word in the mind of your soul. You bring the mind or the intentions of your soul in direct alignment with what you are hearing. That's why light was made on day one. The earth was made on day three, is it? Right? Light, heaven, earth. Earth is a, speaks of, of, of context. We don't live out of, the, out of our earthly context. We live out of the word that formed light. Right? Sun, moon, and stars came on day four. Right? So we, we don't, when we hear word, the words we hear are spirit and they are life. My spirit interfaces with that word which is eternal. And I bring my mind or the mind of my soul in alignment with what I'm hearing in the spirit. So in Peter on the day of, when he was having that, that vision in Acts 9, I think it is. Arise, Peter, kill and eat. You saw unclean animals. He initially reacted, no, no, I can't. A word is coming, but I'm responding with how? My, my theological upbringing and my knowledge of Levitical dietary laws in the book of Leviticus tells me I shouldn't be eating this. Yet there's a word saying, arise, Peter, kill and eat. And God said to him, how dare you call unclean that which I have sanctified as? Clean. And what was the whole message of that vision? God was trying to inform Peter that Gentiles, not only Jews, the so-called unclean nations, Gentiles are just as much a part of the kingdom as Jews are. Right? And God was going to use him to usher in one of the first group of Gentiles, Cornelius and his household, waiting to be ushered into the kingdom. So God had to almost... Can you see, whenever word comes, it breaks illegal opinions, archaic, obsolete viewpoints you have in the mind of your soul. So when you receive the word with the mind of your spirit, it, the mind of your soul must be brought in alignment with what you are hearing in your spirit. And so with your body, this lamp that illumines your spirit, you can also put practical steps to. And you can walk in accuracy in terms of what you are hearing. Right? But it also says on the next page, Proverbs 6.23, Your commandment is a lamp. So, this lamp is commandments. The commandment is a lamp to my feet. Your commandment is a lamp, but your teaching is a light. Right? Now, everyone say Light. Two things. Thy word is a lamp to my feet. The word lamp, the word lamps the feet, as it were. 
But the word also lights the pot. Long-term direction and short-term direction come from the word of the Lord. Now, it says here, what is light? Proverbs 6.23 says, teaching is light, but the lamp is commandments. Teaching is light. Doctrine is light that illumines the long-term direction. Specific commandments illumine your actual paths. There's two luminaries spoken about, two expressions of light. The lamp and the light. And Proverbs 6 says, um, this lamp that illumines your spirit, that informs the mind of your soul, that conditions you in your body to walk an accurate path, that lamp is called commandments. The lamp is called commandments, but the light that lights, doc, uh, that lights the long-term direction is called teaching or doctrine. That's why you need doctrine. Because you have to know the path for you to walk accurately in the first place. These two things are both so important together. Psalm 19 verse 8 says, The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is what? This commandment which is a lamp to your feet, the commandment of the Lord is pure. And what does it do to your eyes? enlightens the eyes. Everyone say an enlightened eye. Please, you've got to string all of these six verses together. Right? The commandment of the Lord is the lamp, illuminating the mind of my spirit, conditioning the mind of my soul. That commandment, the Bible says, I mean to do this with the guy, enlightens my eyes. That commandment's a lamp to my feet so I know how to walk. Right? I pray that the eyes of your understanding, Paul said, be in enlightened. Right? But it says, the light lights my path, and this light is called teaching, which is, which is doctrine. Then Job says this, when his lamp shone over my head, by his light, I walk through darkness. Now, Job puts his two components together. He says, this lamp, this commandment, which enlightens my eyes. Now this which is supposed to give light to my feet. To give light to my feet, it must be in my head. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened. The lamp over your head is a depiction of the word of God conditioning your mentality. Your thinking. right, The mind of your soul, as it were. But look what it says. When his lamp shone over my head... By his light, I can walk through darkness. You need commandment and doctrine. You need specific instructions and concrete. That's why Bible study times are so important. Because you can't have specific commandments walking on the wrong path. <laughs> right? I love this verse in Job. I was blessed today when I heard Tamo's I, I sermon that he preached on Good Friday. Um, tonight before I sleep, I will listen to the one he did on Sunday. But this morning I listened to his sermon on Good Friday and he mentioned this verse in Job, in the sermon. He's doing a series on light right, right now. Please, it's already, there are already five sessions up on his website. Light part one, light part two, up to part five. So please just keep abreast and keep listening to get that doctrine inside of, you, of, 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 of your spirit. And you must read the preceding verses here before Job and the proceeding verses after this. 
and see the effect that this has on the man. Job. I'll allude to it on Sunday, perhaps, if we get the time. Tell your neighbor, walk through darkness. What's going to keep you sane in your affliction, in your darkness? You're going to have to have some kind of GPS, some kind of navigational system. There is light at the end of the tunnel, okay? So obey the commandments. Let them light up your eyes, illumine your understanding. Walk surely, and by his doctrine or his light, you can walk through darkness, even through the valley of, the, of, the, of death's shadow. Look at Psalm 43, verse 3. Oh, send out your light and your truth and let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling place. Amen. Next point. Prosperity and success come to him, comes to him who delights in the word. Psalm 1 verse 1 to 3 says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seats of the scornful. Everyone says sit, walk, stand. Or well, in order of this verse, it's walk, stand, sit. Okay? Three elements. These, these phrases, walk, stand, sit, encompass all of life. Right? Well, you're walking, you're standing, you're sitting. So you don't walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the part of sinners, sit in the seat of the scornful, but your delight. Everyone say delight. Delight is in the law of the Lord. In His law, He meditates uh, the word meditate means to, uh, I'll do it, the whole study of meditation, part of the series, right towards the end of this primacy of the word. But the Hebrew word literally means to revolve over and over and over again in your mind. Meditate. To think deeply. To cogitate. To spin an idea over and over. So listen carefully. Why doesn't he do not walk in the counsel of the ungodly? stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. He doesn't do that because he's doing something else. There's something else he's doing. He's delighting in the word. If you don't delight in the word, you're going to be prone to walking in the wrong path, sitting under the wrong counsel, and standing in the wrong company. So, can you see how important it is to love God's word? This will keep you safe from a lot of things. No one's going to tell me. Um, let me use some stupid example. I can go and enjoy myself at a strip club. And I'm going home to enjoy my Bible study after that. Because it doesn't work, eh? It's your delight, just your devotion to the fact that I need to engage this word. It will keep me sane. It's God's protective mechanism in my life. No one can tell me I'm just going gonna, gonna to lie now through my teeth and then I'm going to my room to engage the word of the Lord. Your delight in the word will keep you pure and holy. Okay? And notice the benefit of the blessing of this, of delighting in the word of the Lord. Uh, oh, by the way, your, your delight here is evidenced by your meditation. The thing that you employ your mind to will indicate what you're delighting in. Right? So how often do you Turn over the word of the Lord in your mind. Think about doctrine. Think about certain verses. Okay? A good practice to do, maybe you must start this. Let your last thought, before you put your head on that pillow, be a scripture. And let the first thought when you wake be a scripture. One way to practice this is keep a Bible at your bedside. Let the last thing you read or think about be the word. 
first thing, even if you're just going to read one verse, let it be the word. I am saying do whatever it takes, but do practical things to install this word in your system. To get these things, light and lamp going, you're going to have to, to prioritize this. Whatever works for you, please do it. Okay? The benefit is threefold on, on page seven. Fruitfulness relevant to any season in God, right? He will be like a tree firmly planted by the stream of water. It heals its fruit in its season, right? You'll always be fruitful. There'll be no barrenness. The Bible says his leaf also will not wither. Leaves wither in autumn, not so. When the plant decays, leaf in this context is symbolic of prosperity amidst adversity. So when the season says you should not be having leaves, this plant, its leaves do not wither. When the, when the natural circumstances says should be withering. Right? He lives immune to external negative natural environments. He does not evade the crisis in which he is located, but he is sustained through it by God. Right? You, it's not like you don't feel the pinch of things, but you are buoyant. You're always sustained in it. Okay? And thirdly, whatever you do will prosper. Right? I'm amazed. You know, I speak, see some Christians and I see how they struggle almost perpetually. It becomes like a characteristic feature of their lives. And I said, but, are you, and you don't even read the word. Said, what hope do you have of coming out of this? When, when the very key to get you out, you're ignoring. What, what hope? I can't even pray for you. If you're neglecting the word, if you're neglecting the sound of the voice of your spiritual father, what hope is there for you to be delivered from your crisis? The very means that is designed to get you out, you're ignoring. Right? So you're in this vicious, perpetual cycle. Right? So I want to encourage us to delight in God's word. And I, I want the blessing of Psalm 1 to be a characteristic feature of this house. Amen? Amen? Do you believe that these things can happen in our context? Right? Whatever we do will prosper. Our leaves will not wither in, in autumn season spiritually. Right? Next point. Delighting in His Word is an expression of your fear and reverence for God. Your fear of God is evidenced by your delight. Psalm 112 verse 1 says, Praise the Lord, how blessed is the man who... Fears the Lord, who greatly, not, 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 not just delights, but he, he greatly delights in his commands. It's proof of your reverence and your fear for God. Next point, delight in his word as you would if you had access to unquantifiable financial riches. Hmm? I guarantee you, if I had sent the email today, please, uh, everyone come. Uh, we, we, we're doling out bags of gold to everyone who attends the Bible study tonight. We would have a full house, right? I've enlisted the services of some financial company, and they've been very, very gracious to the house, right? Um, they, they're not giving loans. They're giving away money, right? A minimum of a million rand to everyone who attends. <laughs> this house will be packed. Parking will be an issue. But guess why people are not here? Most, a lot of people aren't here. This wasn't as important enough 
because you did not value it as critical enough in your life to receive it. I'm not saying, I know some have valid reasons. There are valid reasons why some couldn't be here. And that's fine. But I'm saying generally in the church, not just here, globally, um, you, you call a bribe, all the brews are present. Call a Bible study, few are present. Right? Um, I'm, I'm amazed at some concerts, gospel concerts. We have traffic problems. I went to one about two years ago. I won't mention the artist, but we had traffic problems. It, took, it almost took us two hours to get out of the building and into our car and home. And I'm sitting there in this, this music event. I'm saying, if only we had this crowd and there was someone preaching the word here and preaching life, what impact it would have on these young people. Hmm? People esteem the wrong things. Right? Here's some verses in reference to this. Psalm 119, verse 14. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. Right? You should be smiling tonight like you found gold. You eat it big time. Right? You're discovering principles of the word. This is gold. This is unquantifiable riches to me. Right? I'm going away rejoicing. I've just accessed eternal... Even if you learned one thing tonight that's going to keep you going for the next two months or whichever. I've, I've got a gem I'm going to hold on to. I rejoice at your word, verse 162, as one who finds great spoil. Psalm 19, verse 10, they are more desirable than gold. Yes, much than fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Verse 72 of 119, Psalm, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Hmm? Tell your neighbor, treasure the voice. Next point. Delighting in his word ensures you will not forget his word. His word is forgotten when the principles of his word are not upheld in your life as principles to live by. We taught this at the very second session, Deuteronomy 8. His word is forgotten when his principles are no longer adhered to. Verse 16 of Psalm 119. I shall delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Delighting in the principles of the word is access to inheriting them. Everyone say inheritance. Everything in God, all the fullness of all that God has planned for us, I want to say this categorically to all of us, is only accessed through his word. In, in verse 111 of Psalm 119, I've inherited your testimonies forever, for they are the joy of my heart. Acts 20 verse 32. Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders. I commend you to God and to what? And to the word of his grace. Which is able to build you up. And to give you the inheritance amongst all them that are sanctified. So your inheritance. How is Paul going to get the inheritance to the Ephesian elders? He says I give you the word of his grace. This word does two things. It's able to build you up. And to give you an inheritance amongst all them that are sanctified. No one must complain that you were not in somebody's will. You have an inheritance tonight. Inheritance is in the word of the, the word of the Lord. Next point. Delighting in the word will naturally result in it being dominant in your thoughts and your meditation. 
Oh, how I love thy law. Verse 97. It is my meditation all of the day. You will meditate on the thing that you, you love. And I know I'll do a whole session of meditation, but please, um, apart from your studying the word and your prayer life, meditation is that, that long-forgotten Christian discipline where we don't give it in our normal daily life. We don't churn over and think deeply about Scripture. It's in the process of meditation that revelation happens. Okay? Most times after I've studied, and I go to bed, I'm thinking, then I see the light. Oh, then it's getting up at hours of the morning trying to document what you see. You know, very often, most times when I'm preaching, only I see the light. It's only after consistent thinking. Oh, the lights come on. Right? The word enlightens your eyes. Amen? Next point. Delighting in his word is evidenced by it being assimilated into the entirety of one's life. And this provides proof that you are natured after the nature of God. Lovely verse here in Jeremiah 15 verse 16. Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became for me the joy and the delight of my heart. Everyone say four. Four means because. With this in mind, because I've been called by your name, O Lord of hosts. And name we know speaks of nature and function, not so. The, the Bible in basic English version frames it like this. But to me your word is a joy, making my heart glad, for I am named by your name. Right? Remember we taught that the nature of God is only attainable through the word of the Lord in the first two sessions. Right? And so Jeremiah is saying here, I found your words and I ate them. Your words were unto me the joy and the rejoicing of my heart. Why? Simply because I'm natured after your nature. Your name is my name. I'm named after you. Right? Um, I have a nature akin to you. So then I will esteem and delight in the thing by which I derive that nature from. The very means by which I get your name, your nature to me, is this word. Hence I, I delight. I, for words are found, I ate them. Your words were unto me the joy and the rejoicing of my, of my heart. Next point. Delighting in the word is an absolutely satisfying and pleasurable experience. Who loves Bible study? Right? Satisfying and pleasurable. Uh, when you approach your personal times of reading and study at home, not just talking about church meetings now, do you enjoy that? It's like you can't wait. Right? I can't wait to get home to hear my father. Right? An hour of word. Right? Put that, download that message. Let it play. Right? I, I want to encourage you. Let the word resound and echo and reverberate consistently. I would say, become a fanatic. Let them call you loony if they want to. But become so word-based. Even the, the, the children, the youngster, the youth here, we have quite a few youth at school. Don't be ashamed to carry your Bible in your class. Let them call you your square peg in a round hole if they want to. Say, so carry on. We'll see who ends up how. Right? This is key to life. This is thing upon which all my success is going to hinge upon. Amen. David said this in Psalm 19 verse 10. It's sweeter also than honey and the drippings 
of the honeycomb. Honey makes is pleasant to the taste. Not so. It's empowering. It's invigorating. It's energizing. Right? Boosts your sugar level. Gives you energy, etc. It's pleasurable. Right? The word does all of these things. Now Ezekiel says it like this. Ezekiel 3, 1, 2, 3. He said to me, son of man, eat what you find. Eat the scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. Now you can stop. There's a, there's a message in just that verse. You can't speak until you've eaten the scroll. Here's a prophet being sent almost like an apostolic commissioning. But before you go speak, you brother, start eat the, eat the scroll. And this is an image of what? Taking the word, but this is literal eat the scroll, you have to literally do it. This is internalizing and assimilating the contents of the word into your life. Where you and the word become, you and the word become one. So before we speak, we have to spend time. And I, I really want to encourage you, like I said, become obsessive about this issue. Go over the top if you have to. Right? Let them say, but we don't see you at the socials anymore. And you're saying, but I am eating the scroll. Right? Cut down your fellowship time if you have to, but immerse yourself in this word. Then he says, so I opened my mouth and he fed me the scroll. He said to me, son of man, feed your stomach. Fill your body with the scroll which I am giving you. And I ate it. It was as sweet as honey in my mouth. Powerful, eh? But now listen carefully. The word may be sweet to the taste, but a bitter process to internalize it and assimilate it fully into one's being. Making it an essential part of who you are. This requires obedience as you go through the process of obeying the word. Revelation 10 verse 9. So I went to the angel telling him to give me the little book. He, and he said to me, take it and eat it. Similar command, take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little book out of the angel's hand. I ate it in my mouth. It was sweet as honey. And when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. Now, bitterness is repellent to any normal human being. You want, uh, that which is bitter, you, you, you naturally are, you, 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 you avoid it. Your body is repellent towards it. Uh, bitter processes. Myrrh is a symbol of bitterness in, in the scripture. Right? So it implies some degree of difficulty. Something which you naturally will avoid. When you eat the word, it's sweet to your taste. But bitter to the internalization. Because in the stomach is where now it's assimilated into the construct of your body. Not so. Food is digested in the, in the stomach. Becomes part of your body. Right? Now let me just say this. When the apostolic reformation hits specifically, we were all taken up with the sweetness of the revelation. Right? Because doctrine can be tantalizing. It can be impressive. It can be alluring. It's enjoyable. Some people flirt with it. We're attracted to it. It's nice sounding words, powerful word. Yo, check that doctrine, powerful word. But living it can be, when the word comes to test you and now to internalize that, will be a bitter process. But most things bitter are good for you. 
<laughs> in fact, all the healthy foods are bitter. Hmm? All the nice things like ice cream and chocolate. And, right? Right? So I want to encourage you. Go through your bitter process. Let the word have its complete effect within your life. Amen? Don't just accept the sweetness of the nice tasting revelation. Live obediently to the word in the process in which that word will test you. Amen? On page 9. Next point. Delight to do his will. I want to stress this as we close. Listen carefully. Delight. Your delight in his word must translate into a delight into the actual execution of his will. Doing the will of the Lord. Right? Within your heart. Inscribe his word upon your heart. His word must not just be on paper. It must be literally inscribed in your heart. Jeremiah 31, 33. This is the commandment which I have made with the house of Israel after those days. Declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God and they will be my, my people. Previously, if you read the previous verses to this, God speaks about writing the law on tablets of stone which Israel transgressed. But he says, now the law will not be written externally. The law will be inscribed internally upon their heart. It will be part of who they are. Psalm 37 verse 31, the law of his God is in his heart and his steps do not slip. I like that. The law of God is in his heart and his steps do not slip. Remember Daniel, Rene preached about this. Daniel determined not to defile himself with the king's food. Right? He made a decision before. So in the hour of the temptation, it was easy to obey God. Why? Because the principle was set as a, a principle by which he will regulate his life before he encountered the temptation. Hmm? So you, you make a decision, I will not steal. Bible says thou shalt not steal. That's a principle etched on the, on, the, on the tablets of my heart. right? My spirit is illumined by that principle. Theft is not part of me. So then when I'm at work and there's somebody left something and it's alerting and tempting for me to, to take and I need the thing, guess what? It's not even a, I don't beg it in the sweat, it's not even a, oh, should I, shouldn't I? Right? Why? I can just walk away and Basically ignore the temptation. Why? The principle is already set as a regulating factor within me. I don't just have to contend with decisions in the hour of my temptation. I make it reflexively because that principle was forever etched in my, in my, in my heart. Amen? 2 Corinthians 3. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again or do we need as some letters of commendation to you or from you. You are our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are the letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tables of stone, but on tables or tablets of, of human hearts. Paul says you are our letter, right, written, um, written on our hearts, known and read by all men, but you are manifested. While he says you are our letter, you are manifested as the letter of Christ. 
right? only cared for by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God on the tablets of human hearts. Now, listen carefully. Everyone say, inscribed upon the heart. It's important for you to get this principle because, you see, the letter mustn't become a dead letter in manuals. It must become a dead letter in, on pages. It must become a written instruction on paper in the Bible. The principle of the, the law of the Lord must be etched on the tablets of your own life, of your own internal heart. Because Psalm 40 is a very important verse. We're going to read it now. It says in verse 7. It's, it's a messianic psalm, prophetic of Jesus himself. Verse 7. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book, it is written about me. Where is it written about me? Everyone say, in the book. Say, in the word. Now listen carefully. This is a messianic psalm, prophetic of Jesus. It says, I come. In the scroll of the book, it is written about me. I delight to do your will. Why? Your law is in my heart. We've been talking about delighting in the word all along. Delight in the word, delight in the word, delight in the word. That word must be etched in your heart. And your delight in the word must translate into a delight to do the will. To do the will. Now listen carefully. To do the will, you're going to have to read about yourself in the word. Lo, it is written about me where? In the book. Right? Now, Luke 4 tells you, I'll put the verse there. Jesus said, verse 15, He began teaching in the synagogues. He was praised by all. He came to Nazareth. They had been brought, we had been brought up. As was his custom, he entered the synagogue of the Sabbath and he stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. He opened the book. Everyone say, in the, in the stroll of the book, it's written about me. Listen carefully. The Son of God starts to read about his life in the book. Didn't know it. He reads about himself. Listen carefully. He opened the book and he found the place... In the book of Isaiah, where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, etc., etc. Verse 20. He closed the book, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down, and the eyes of all of, the, of, all of them in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. It's amazing. The Son of God found out about what God said about him in the book. Jesus wasn't on some mountain somewhere, and some angel came and said, Oh, by the way, the Spirit of the Lord's upon you. You're going to do this, this, proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, open the eyes of the blind, etc. He discovered his will about himself by studying the book. You see, when you delight in the book, when you, the, the word is your delight, and that law is etched upon your heart. Psalm 40 says, read verse 8 again. I delight to do what? I delight to do your will because your law is in my heart. Lo, it is written about me in the, in the book. In the scroll of the book, it is written about me. So you can discover things about yourself that God has predetermined for you in the book. 
I always, people want to know what is God's will for me and they want you to pray but they're not studying the book. Don't be lazy. Read about yourself in the book. Let me just tell, I'll prophesy over all of us. I said this prophetically to us this evening. Dare God. I dare you to dare God. You take the time to consult the book and see how God will direct your paths. See how you're going to start to see yourself in the scripture. I believe God is a genius of geniuses. Brilliant beyond brilliance is our God. He's literally embedded every son in his book. And he's able to lead and guide billions of human beings called sons of God in the earth. As they consult the book, they will begin to get revelation as to what they should do in this life. It's written about you. God codified you in his book. You are embedded in the word. And all it takes is delight. Let that word be etched in your heart and you will delight to do his will as he reveals you to you from his book. See yourself in the book. Hmm? When last have you seen yourself in the book? When last you're reading and you can honestly say like Jesus, today this scripture has been fulfilled. Hmm? And not just in my eyes, in the, it's, it's now witness. It's in, in all of your hearing, Jesus said. The scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And guess what? Jesus consistently frequented the synagogue. It just so happened it was his turn to read that day. The attendant gave him the scroll of Isaiah. I don't know whether they were following some program of systematic chapters to be followed. Someone opens the scroll. Right? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. <laughs> Picture this reading. For he has anointed me to, to preach the gospel to the poor, to open the eyes of the blind, to set at liberty those that are captive, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Rolls it up. Thank you. Oh, by the way, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in all of your hearing. I've just read about myself in the book, and now I'm the, the word that was read has become the word made flesh. Amen? The word you read must become the word made flesh in your life. Okay, last page. Okay, we'll take five minutes. Last page. I have to do this. Oh, by the way, at the bottom of page nine, Jesus said this, my food is to do the will of him that sent me. John 4, 34. Go to page 10. Never lose your love for God's word. I want to encourage you. Never lose your love for God's word. Right? By now, after tonight's study, I hope you, your love for God's word has been elevated, magnified, excited. Right? Go on to the next level. Amen? Psalm 119, verse 47 to 48. I shall delight in your commandments, which I love. I shall lift up my hands to your commandments, which I love. And I will meditate on your, command, on your statutes. Love these. The very, uh, these scriptures mean so much to me. I will delight in your commandments, which I love. I lift up my hands. You know, the word becomes an object of praise and worship. I will lift up my hands to your commandments, which I love. Verse 96 and 97. I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandments are exceedingly broad. 
Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Verse 127. Therefore I love your commandments above gold. Yes, above fine gold. Therefore I esteem right all your precepts concerning everything. I hate every false way. Your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore my soul observes them. The unfolding of your words, the entrance of your word gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. I opened my mouth wide and I panted. I longed for your commandment. Can you see this verse is so rich, eh? verse 131. I opened my mouth wide. (laughs) I panted. It was like a thirsty person. I panted. For I longed for your commandments. Verse 159. Consider, Lord, how I love your precepts. Revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. The sum of your word is truth. Every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. I want to read a quote from Derek Prince's book. This is from the Foundation Series, Volume 1, page 27 and 28. Read with me. Just follow me. It is impossible to overestimate or to overemphasize the importance of the place of God's word in the life of the Christian believer. Let me present these truths to you in a direct and personal way. The keeping of God's word is the supreme distinguishing feature which should mark you out from the world as a disciple of Christ. It is the test of your love for God. It is the cause of God's love and favor toward you. It is the way that Christ will manifest himself to you. It is the way that God the Father and God the Son will come into your life and make their home with you. Let me put it to you this way. Your attitude towards God's word is your attitude towards God himself. If you do not love God more, sorry, you do not love God more than you love his word. You do not obey God more than you obey his word. You do not honor God more than you honor his word. You do not have more room in your heart and life for God than you have for his word. Do you want to know how much God means to you? You can easily find out. Just ask yourself, how much does God's word mean to me? The answer to the second question is the answer also to the first. God means as much to you as his word means to you. Just that much and no more. Hmm? You can try, tell me in various phrases and how much you love God. It all comes down to your love, your delight, and your obedience to the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. The Lord bless you. Amen.